Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 69, Holy Sights. Recorded Thursday, September 3rd of 2015, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. And we don't have a guest with us tonight, which is a little unusual, it seems. Yeah, (laughs) we've had quite the run of them lately. Yeah, Uh, three good guests on the past three episodes. So uh, I do want to thank Mike Perna, Chris and Katrina, Irma Newton, and Kyle Rudge, our last three guests. All have been fantastic, and we've been very lucky to have them on. So thanks for coming on, folks. Yeah, we really do get the best guest hosts. It's quite amazing. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. On a completely unrelated note, the MacGuffin Factory Episode 2, which is kind of the secondary podcast that I'm doing with Mike Perna, it will probably be out if my guess about timing is right when this episode drops. If not, it'll be just a couple days later. So keep an eye on the Inroads Ministries feed for new MacGuffin Factory content. I am not sure if it's up on iTunes yet because it's just a you know like monthly podcast. I'm not sure if Mike's got that sorted out yet, but if not, I will poke him on it and make sure that he does. <laughs> it's really good, folks. Well, thank um, you. The first episode on Skeleton Keys was fantastic. I'm uh, I'm going to have to re-listen to it sometime when I'm not driving so I can <coughs> jot down some notes, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a really nice resource podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I submitted it to a few places, and uh, the best review I got online was... Uh, you know, so I was like, oh, I'll give it a listen, and then came back, bloody hell, this is actually really refreshingly interesting. I'm impressed. So <laughs> That is quite the uh, high praise there. So, you know, that's cool. In other news, and this is purely personal, it'll affect us later on in, you know, a few months, uh, Kid Number 2 is on the way. Hooray. Congratulations, even though I've congratulated you privately already of course and thank you i'm very excited obviously as is everyone in the family including my daughter who is convinced she's getting a little brother to play with and is going to be sorely disappointed about the kid to play with we'll see about gender (laughs) well she probably won't be in um another three four years or so she's just gonna have to be way more patient than any toddler has ever been inclined to be exactly Turns out children are very boring when they're first born. So there you go. <laughs> like not to parents, but to little kids who want to play. Uh, oh yeah, a play buddy. Oh yeah, no, it's just <laughs> there's the sense of well, what is this? This isn't what I asked for. So <laughs> this this is like a doll that needs to be taken care of. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, that was you three years ago, kid. <laughs> Give it some time. Anyway, just uh, an FYI. At some point, Peter may have to learn to edit. Peter may have to learn to do a solo episode or two. <laughs> Something. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm sure we got some folks who will fill in as guests and things like that. But I'll Oh, yeah, I've them. got some ideas as to who I'd ask, even. so There you go. We'll make it work. But, hey, that's a thing that's coming up. Yeah, Spoilers, listeners, nobody we haven't already had on already, so don't get too excited. But yeah. there's, there's a few people that I would probably try and get back if I had to. Indeed. Before we move on to our main topic, if you have not reviewed us on iTunes and or Stitcher yet, or any other podcast platform of your choice, 
please go ahead and do so. And if we're not on there, go ahead and submit us or tell us which one we should be submitting to. Those reviews help us a lot. I cannot stress how much they help us. Yeah, they help us with feedback, with visibility, with in every conceivable way you could imagine them helping a podcast, they help. Yeah, and I'm not sitting here saying, hey, give us a five-star review. Any review that's honest is a huge help. There's a link to our iTunes and Stitcher pages on our website. I'll put one in the show notes as well, just to make sure that, you know, it's easily found for those of you who maybe don't go out to our website regularly. All right. Scripture? Yeah. Um, we've got two tonight. Do you want Exodus or Matthew? I'm fighting a cold. Do you mind if I take Exodus? Go for it. Awesome. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And this is Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So we're talking tonight about holy sites which is a pretty broad category, but rife with adventure opportunity. But the first question we have to ask ourselves when we're talking about them is, what is a holy site at all? Peter, how do you define those? Well, often it's the place where something significant in the history of the faith that's holy to happened. So, for instance, uh, the Red Sea, where, you know, the Israelites walked across on dry land could potentially be a holy site. It could be like a historical church or other holy building, so like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or um, even something more recent like the Sistine Chapel, Notre Dame, or Westminster Abbey would also qualify. Could just be any place of worship, depending on you know Very your true. Inter interpretation of the term. You know, there's lots of literature where you know supernatural evil can't enter into any church or anything like that. And of course, in supernatural settings, it may be a place of some power. It may be something where there's some magical and or supernatural element to the site. Uh, maybe there's no organized worship there, but it is a holy place. Like, for example, uh, when God appears to Moses in a burning bush, he says, this place that you are standing on is holy ground. Well, we don't really know where that is. There are traditions about it, but we don't know for certain. But we all have this idea of that as a holy place. Um, Highlander, which is a silly example to go to, but, you know, there we are. One of the interesting things that they throw in Highlander is that holy ground, whatever that is, is a place where nobody fights. Even the really bad guys in Highlander don't fight on holy ground. It's just not done or they can't do it. It's never quite clear. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't really remember my Highlander all that well. Was it that they don't or that they can't? Well, it's pretty clear that they don't, right? Like, none of us will fight on holy ground. Yeah, Sean Connery throws that line out there when, you know, because he's the Scottish Spaniard with a katana, because it's right. Highlander. <laughs> um, I, I remember that line pretty clearly, because, you know, the, the big nasty guy, whose name I cannot remember for the life of me, he shows up and he's kind of threatening Clad in the church, but he's certainly not going to fight him there. You know, he's putting out votive candles and leering at nuns and that sort of thing. 
but he cert- he's not going to fight McLeod there. You get this impression that it, you know, yes, it's kind of by agreement, but there might be something more to it than that. The agreement could have some teeth, as it were. Yeah, and I don't remember if the series explored that more or any of the other movies, because it's not like there's continuity to any of this, so... Well, and yeah. I'm, I'm not a major Highlander fan either, so if one of our listeners is... I enjoyed it a lot. I really did. I remember watching the series and stuff, but... Yeah, it was on Netflix for a while, and I remember I tried to go back to it. Didn't you can't up. go back. Just... It's it's so 80s. <laughs> it's just... It's brutal. Too, too cheesy, huh? Yeah, and I, it hurts. In that fine-aged Swiss sort of way, pungent and full of holes. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. We're going to steal that for later. Anyway, um, you know, we've thrown out a couple examples. Uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Sistine Chapel, Notre Dame, Westminster Abbey. There are any number of famous shrines of other religions. Um, you know, the Hagia Sophia, the Temple of the Mount, places like that that have changed hands over time. Those are particularly interesting. Yeah, and some of those places are really beautiful. I know the Hagia Sophia in particular is... Uh... A wonder that I always build in civilization just because I love looking at it so much. Right. Yeah, and there are lots of places like that, and they're they're lovely. Yeah. Places of worship aren't the only holy sites. Places where saints were martyred may be holy. Sites of direct divine intervention. You get lots of those, especially in the Catholic Church. But something like the Red Sea would also qualify. Sure. Birthplaces, death places, and the graves and tombs of significant figures of the faith a lot of the time would qualify. Yep. Golgotha, where Christ was crucified. Yep. Very popular among Christian pilgrims, obviously. You know, the Holy Land is full of places like this. Hence the name. Exactly. Ruins still have significance in some cases. Sometimes they're just abandoned, but sometimes... They're all that's left, and they're the more valuable because of that. The Western Wall in Jerusalem springs to mind. Yeah, also known as the Wailing Wall. Yep. So you may have attention paid to those. So with kind of a, a basic idea of what we're talking about, let's talk about how to use these. The first, and I think most trivial in terms of complexity, but nonetheless an important one. Well, and the most obvious, really. Simply having it there to... Uh, you know, worship at or use, and, you know, without any difficulty, without any complexity, just having it there. Your band of D&D adventurers goes to town, the cleric goes to the local temple. Well, okay, now there's contacts and duties, maybe tithes, offerings, all sorts of things that can happen. I guess the next step up the chain in terms of complexity is making a pilgrimage to one. Right. Important sites draw people from all over, not just the local area. The pilgrimage itself may be a religious observance. Yeah, like most Muslims try and make it to Mecca at least once in their life, for instance. Right. The Hajj. There may be something significant that only exists at that site. To use the the Hajj as an example, the Hajj is a mandatory duty, right? It's one of the five pillars of Islam. And there's the Kaaba, which is this cube-shaped building uh, that all prayer uh, for Muslims is directed towards, that's kind of the whole point of the Hajj. And that's one of the the ritual actions, really the key ritual action is going to Mecca and doing these circuits around the Kaaba. There are other reasons to go. There's a whole set of lesser pilgrimages and things like that that I am 
not familiar with, so I don't want to talk about too much, just be out of ignorance more than anything else. Uh, but certainly, it may not be there's one thing to go do. Going to the Vatican, for instance, there's a lot in Vatican City that is of importance to Catholics. It's not just the Basilica. Right. There's a lot there that is of historical and traditional importance. And there may be certain things that are not necessarily ritual objects, artwork, holy texts, people. I mean, artwork, the, the famous example that comes to mind is the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Sure. Uh, oracles may be a very common reason for a pilgrimage. Sure. Yeah. Delphi. Yep. Anything like that. I, I think any of those call out for action because people need to get there. And anything that interferes with that pilgrimage is something that players can get involved with. We talked about this all the way back in episode three when we were talking about the Knights Templar. The Templar Order was founded to protect pilgrims going to the Holy Land after the First Crusade. Awesome. We've got knights on horseback doing things in dangerous areas. What more could you ask for yeah, from an RPG? That sounds like an adventuring party. Exactly. One of the party may want to go on a pilgrimage. Aside from just an excuse to get a character out of the way for a while, it's an excuse for the party to go and do things, and maybe there's something important at the site, but the journey is dangerous. Well, and that journey is also an excellent excuse for the GM to show the party other parts of his campaign world, too, or her campaign world. Yeah, as long as the GM does not turn it into a, you know, this is the trip you're going on slideshow. Unless that's what the, okay. um, the group signed up for. I mean... A journey-based campaign could be interesting. As long as it doesn't turn into, all right, sit bored on the couch while I show you pictures, it's probably okay. Yeah, and if it's like, okay, so now you're here, and this is what it's like, and here's what's going on, what do you do? That's yeah. fine. Right. What do you do instead of, here's what you see? Yeah. <laughs> it's probably <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, that's just general good GMing advice. What do you do is much more um, interesting question than, what do you think of this thing that I've just shown you a picture of? So this is applicable to both pilgrimages, you know, as a concept and kind of regular access or regular sites, access to the site. If that is blocked by something, then that's immediately a call for action. It needs to be fixed. Dangers, disasters, whatever. I found this is particularly common in Japanese console RPGs. Oh, yeah? Uh, for, for some reason... It's just one of those, the road to X shrine is blocked. Go deal with it. Hmm. Well, and kind of a variation on this is the site could still be technically accessible. You know, it might not be like closed or anything, but the area around it is suddenly more dangerous or impassable than normal. This could be anything from a war to a snowstorm. Yeah. Bridge out. Yeah. Uh, right, avalanche, uh, mudslide, you know, hurricane season, civil war. Any of those things. Politics. Hey, you know, somebody closed a border. Yeah. Well, now we can't get to the church that's just over the border that we all traditionally go to, and, you know, somebody's making a scene. Okay, what do we do now? Likewise, instead of threatening travel, you could threaten the site itself. Natural disaster, again, is very popular for this. You know, there's a flood happening, there's a mudslide, an earthquake, anything like that. Ravages of time can be surprisingly difficult to deal with if this is an old temple and it's falling apart. Yeah, wind is surprisingly erosive, for one thing, um, especially if it's in a sandy area. Stuff can get stripped away pretty fast if 
care isn't taken to preserve it, and sometimes even mm-hmm. if care is taken to preserve it. Yeah, sandstorms can bury buildings. And if you're in a place that's used to it, if it's particularly nasty, it may just be difficult to deal with. Yeah. Um, abandonment is another one that I think is pretty popular and pretty well known. People's lives change for various different reasons. All the worshippers of a particular deity move out of town and their temple gets abandoned and nobody else wants to use the site for whatever reason. All right, well, 30 years later, you've got this abandoned building that's dangerous and infested by horrible monsters, we're sure, because it always is. (laughs) Pillars of Eternity pulls this pretty early. Yeah. Uh, And I particularly like it because it's abandoned because of some politics and, and war and things like that. And it's just, it's a nasty, dangerous temple, and you've got to go deal with it. Yep. Politics are pretty common. The destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD, maybe the best example and the best known to most of our listeners. The temple gets smashed by the Romans because of Jewish rebellion and Rome putting its foot down. Yeah, and I mean, it's happened in more recent history, too. Uh, Another... Example of this happening on a massive scale was the Nazis tried to wipe away not just the religion, but the culture of everybody that they conquered. So not just religious sites, but artwork and everything else, they were doing it systematically. Yeah, the the Taliban very famously blew up these enormous, beautiful Buddha statues carved into cliff's faces. Uh, there were these huge, beautiful statues that they just dynamited out of existence. Yep. Things like that. And that's, you know, less of a geopolitical conflict and more of a religious conflict, which is kind of the next thing we're going to talk about. But it certainly is, it goes in it hand in hand. This is a threat to our power here. We're going to blow it up. Yeah, or crush it with a hammer or whatever else. Yeah. Religious shakeups and religious changes can be just as dangerous to any holy site as anything else. Uh, in very supernatural Forgotten Realms-like settings, a deity dies, uh, some supernatural evil gets destroyed, and all of a sudden, the temple's useless. Yeah, but I mean, even something like a schism, you know, the Protestant Reformation, you know, you could all of a sudden, this isn't viewed as a holy site anymore, because it's got some connection to some prior events that call that into question, or, you know, there's there's yeah. definitely the, the potential for something that's bloodless to still threaten the site. ISIL, ISIS, whatever you want to call it, has famously threatened to blow up the Kaaba because it's unmuslim in whatever weird variation of Islam they're thinking exists. We're talking about kind of a central holy site for most Muslims that this group is threatening because of religious fervor and fundamentalism. It You know, they've gone that far. It may also be that a site has been lost. Archaeologists may want to turn it up. It may have been vacant for so long that nobody really has access to it anymore or has lost track of it entirely. Yeah, it may be like, well, we know it was somewhere between here and here, but that's an area of 350 square miles. Good luck finding it. Yeah, Uh, there used to be a temple here, you know, somewhere up in the mountains. Good luck. 700 years ago. There's an artifact up there you need. Go find it, we think. Yeah. Again... Fantasy worlds tend to have these ridiculously long time frames. 700 years of rotting away up in the mountains. Yeah, but it was made out of metal, so I'm sure it's okay. Yeah. (laughs) And then you get up there and it's at the bottom of a griffin nest and yeah. Oh, yeah. Another possibility is that the site exists and is perfectly fine, but somebody wants to upgrade it. 
This is uh, the, uh, the classic example that comes to mind for this is Renaissance Italy and especially Florence when you have these wealthy patrons, the Medicis and others, building churches and rebuilding churches and adding on to churches for a couple of different reasons. It, it expresses their wealth and their power. It's a way to buy influence with the church. You know, you tell the Pope, hey, I'll build a, a new church or build on to this, this cathedral. Well, that's a good way to get some favors under your belt. But not insignificantly, they were also doing it as a sort of insurance for their own soul. This was a good deed done for the church. That is inherently a good thing in that medieval and post-medieval Christianity. Well, and I mean, that, that sort of mentality persists into the modern world. You'll see tons of churches where there will be wealthy congregants that will fork over huge sums of money for building upgrade projects and stuff. A lot of larger or even medium-sized churches kind of count on that type of support. Right. And it may not be quite as... <sighs> A plus B equals C as it was in the medieval mind, but... Yeah, and it may not be quite as... Um... I'm trying to think of a good word that isn't quite as judgmental as this, but exploitative as something like the prosperity gospel. Right. People can look at this sort of thing and be like, all right, look, if I, you know, if I help by throwing in this money that I have, but nobody else does, this site can be upgraded to, you know, the, the homeless shelter in the soup kitchen that we run can add, you know, beds and cooking equipment and stuff. Or, you know, we can do these outreach ministries that we couldn't before or congregants that are handicapped will have better access or any number of these other things that are genuinely and legitimately good. Yeah, these are things that our church is going through right now. Yeah. We're having to remodel because we thought we were going to tear the sanctuary down and build a new one. And now we're kind of saying, well, we're not because we added a fellowship hall and we're doing an early morning worship service there. So we don't need to expand. We, we already did kind of. And all those building improvements that we put off because there was no point in replacing the roof we were going to tear it down, they kind of need to be done now. And we really do need a working, better elevator for handicapped people because they actually hate coming to church now. Well, we've got a massive vacant industrial building that we got as part of a deal for securing some more parking lot space that we're trying to figure out at my church. So, yeah, which I suppose really could be another adventure in and of itself. The holy site suddenly has all this vacant space attached to it that's for whatever reason, you know, legally or perhaps even religiously now considered part of the site that didn't used to be, what do you do with all of that? You know, who makes that right. decision? Where does the money come from? Where do the workers come from? You know, is there any controversy around that? Is there anything about that that, you know, is a particular opportunity or challenge? Oh, yeah. And anything like that that involves politics and intrigue and money is great fodder for a game that isn't purely hack and slash. Here's a fun one. What happens when the money runs out? Yeah, and you're two-thirds of the way through the upgrade or something. Yeah, or just you can't pay the loan back anymore because something has happened. Uh, this actually happened to our church. So the church built a new sanctuary uh, in the 1920s, and they were paying it off. And the loan from the bank was taken out in kind of the names of these six different congregants. Okay. Well, all of a sudden, you know, 1929 rolls around and the bottom falls out of the stock market and America goes into the Great Depression and these people lose everything. They don't have the money. Nobody in the church has the money to pay off the bank. And the bank took them to court. Specifically, it took these six congregants to court. The church fought the bank saying, hey, you know, it's not these people. It's the church as a whole who took the loan out and the church lost. 
So these six people were responsible for it. There was kind of a collection taken up and, you know, the problem was dealt with. But that's why First Presbyterian Church of Greer was the first church in South Carolina to incorporate, to be an entity in its own right, rather than exposing members of the congregation and pastors and that sort of thing to any legal issues on behalf of the church. If you can't pull a good adventure out of that basic concept, we're not going to be any help to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, but those kind of complexities, getting involved in a site or a new building or an expansion, you know, anything like that. There's a lot going on because you're dealing with people and you're dealing with money and money drives so much adventuring, not just looking for gold coins at the bottom of a dungeon, you know? Right. All right. Some other useful ways to put holy sites into your game. Sanctuary. Again, we kind of talked about this with Highlander, right? You know, holy ground. Nobody fights on holy ground. But um, supernatural entities often can't go onto holy ground. Well, traditionally in fantasy, any type of... Undead or anything of inherent evil. So demons, you know, vampires, zombies, uh, you know, any of the other more exotic forms of fantasy undead. Sometimes right. they accept ghosts because those aren't always necessarily evil. But anything that wants to suck your blood, eat your brains, you know, or otherwise pulverize you. Anything that wants to tempt you. Yeah. Whatever. Generally speaking, those things like hit an invisible wall within a certain distance of a church or another holy site in a lot of fantasy settings. Right. Monasteries and whatever. Likewise, they may be political or legal sanctuaries very often. And again, this gets back into kind of European history of the church and things like that, where because the church was a political entity in its own right, you had people taking sanctuary from the law in churches but it may also be that the church takes in people who are being abused, who are being unfairly treated. Things you see like that. that with immigrants in the United States, some even today. Sure, uh, it may simply be a sanctuary for people who need help getting back on their feet. My church is part of Gain, the Greenville Area Interfaith Hospitality Network that helps homeless families have a place to live for a week. They come into the church and we kind of set up parts of the church as a place for them to live. And that's important because most homeless shelters segregate people by gender, which means families can't live together. If you've got a husband and wife, they have to sleep in separate parts of the homeless shelter. Children have to be apart from their parents and from their siblings and things like which that. Which is understandably very distressing if you're in that situation. <laughs> exactly. So part of the the whole point of the hospitality network is to let people stay together as a family because the church or mosque or synagogue or what have you, because it is an interfaith hospitality network, they live together as families at those sites, just kind of moving around week to week. And, you know, we help host them and that sort of thing. Yeah, I know a lot of churches do PADS too. I uh, don't know PADS. Public Action to Deliver Shelter is what PAD stands for. Uh, there it's you go. common up here in Northern Illinois. I don't know if it's a Midwestern thing, an Illinois thing, or maybe even just a, this particular region thing. Sounds kind of similar to what you were describing actually, but it's just generally for homeless folks to have some place to stay up here. The winters get really bitter. So you see a lot of use of it in the wintertime. If it's sure. 20 degrees below zero outside before you factor in the wind chill, somebody can die of hypothermia real, real fast. That happens even faster if they don't have adequate clothing, and a lot of the time homeless people don't. So that can be a literal life-saving kind of sanctuary up here. Yep. 
And I've seen a few churches in the news lately setting up homeless encampments on church property because it's a safe place where the homeless know they're not going to be harassed, driven off, etc. And the church works with them to shelter them, help them, you know, find stability, find any treatment that they may need, that sort of thing. It's basically a a safe place. Doctrinal side note: that really warms my heart. I feel that's yeah, like exactly what we should be doing as Christians. Yep. Now, these things can be complex. Yeah. Very often, this runs counter to things that are possibly strictly legal or very heavily illegal, depending on where you are and what somebody taking shelter is sheltering for. You know, if somebody is claiming sanctuary in a, a church, like in the movies... Uh, because they've murdered someone and don't want to go to jail for it. Well, hey, conflict. Yeah. And what do players like to deal with? Conflict. At the same time, if one of these churches is setting up like a homeless shelter in one of those areas where they're installing homeless spikes, and the local government and or populace is completely unsympathetic to this, that can create a lot of drama too. Oh, yeah. Sanctuary for any underprivileged, unwanted class of people is a great way to set up a church or religious organization as a good force in your yeah. world and kind of frame and them appropriately. helping them is a good way to let your players feel really heroic, too. Right. And, of course, the situation may be more complex than that, but, you know, it's a good start. Yeah. The last thing that I've got on the list, at least, is that the site is itself a source of supernatural and or magical power. So there's a specific thing from a particular gaming setting that I want to touch on here. The uh, okay. the Anamine role-playing game has these things called tethers in it. The Archangels and the Demon Princes all have what are called words, where it's like some particular aspect of existence that they are particularly keyed to. So um, you'll have, like, Dominic, the uh, the Archangel of Judgment, who's got this justice kind of aspect to him. He handles all kinds of basically dispensing real justice kind of things. So a possible tether for uh, him and his angels would be the sites where Wilberforce argued against slavery in uh, Great Britain would be a, a good example of that. And the have you heard of like the, the concept of a thin space where you can kind of feel that the, the membrane between heaven and earth is thinner and people feel more of a connection to the divine. Yeah. This is kind of that idea, but turned into game mechanics. Fair the enough. The sites may have, uh, they can be large or small. They'll have a certain amount of power. They can, uh, the angelic ones are actually hazardous for demons to walk into. It makes travel between heaven or, in the case of the demonic ones, hell and earth much easier. It's kind of a neat concept. Since Inamine is basically a World of Darkness style game, but with angels and demons, you know, obviously this is not theologically accurate, but as far as uh, something that's really interesting in a supernatural game goes, I really like the concept of tethers. No, they they work well, and kind of related to what you were saying, it may be that there's an inherent power there that has an effect on the world, or on other creatures in the world, right? Like like we've talked about before, uh, the opposing side can't go yeah. in there, things like that. Um, there may also be an inherent power there that protects something important or neutralizes something dangerous. Yeah, this is kind of where, you know, you find the... Uh... 
the sealed tomb of the great evil from the past that the wards have to be maintained, as it were. Yeah, or, you know, you plop a church on top of it to make sure that there's always somebody who's, you know, got some, some holy power keeping an eye on the thing. Or just the presence of holy ground sort of helps neutralize them a bit. And then if that starts getting threatened or abandoned, we can go back into the, the stuff we talked about earlier with higher stakes. Sure. Very often, vampire myths revolve around burying the coffin in holy ground, right? In ch the church cemetery to make sure that he, the body and the soul find peace. Likewise, it may be that because of the presence of some artifact or item or by virtue of the area that something th that is there is protected, you know, some very important item can't be accessed by supernatural evil because it's in a church or what have right. you. It's kind of the uh, the holy force field again around the, the site and then whatever's inside yep. it is insulated. Yep. In fact, I've taken advantage of that in D&D uh, games before. The birthright campaign that we had running for a long time, we I think I spent ridiculous amounts of money and time uh, hallowing the entire area underneath the castle to keep goblins and other horrible things out. <laughs> it just, it had to be done. Well, the problem was things kept teleporting in, and I wanted to make sure that, you know, holy fire would burn them when they did. Like you do. Like you do. Also, we had a lot of really horrible evil items stashed under there to make sure nothing got to them. So, you know. Good luck wading through those defenses, huh? Uh, stuff got through about half the time anyway because the GM. Uh, nothing is GM. Yeah, <laughs> nothing Nothing in any role-playing game in the history of role-playing has ever been GM-proof. Right, of course, GMs will immediately turn around and say, well, nothing's player-proof, what's the point? <laughs> so It's true. If you're, if you're in a world that happens to be a role-playing setting and you are an NPC... We're sorry. Yeah, your life is about to be interesting and probably short. Yeah, one other important... Uh, way to use holy ground and holy sites in adventures and in your campaign is creating new ones. Not just upgrading existing ones, but creating new holy sites. What goes into that is going to depend a great deal on the setting. It may be founding a church and a new congregation and building a building. It may be some super having some supernatural event happening. It may be defeating a great evil. What have you. That is something that's going to come up in any big campaign dealing with big powerful forces or even just community building. It may even happen accidentally. If the player group goes off and slays, you know, the great evil dragon of the West, the cave that the great evil dragon of the West used to live in, possibly even still occupied by its skeleton, may suddenly be a holy site now. Or an unholy site. Yeah, very possibly. I, I think that's the, the explanation officially in the Star Wars canon of the cave that Luke goes into and has horrible visions in and all that, you know, where vision of Darth Vader comes out and Luke fights him and it's Luke's face under the helmet and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think the official explanation is that some other uh, Sith died in that cave. And as a result, it's kind of horrible and all nasty. It's crystallized hatred is in there. Yeah. It's kind of like it's his force ghost in there. And instead of some, you know, nice glowing green 70s hologram looking force ghost you just have this place filled with hate and awfulness and dark side energy and all that sort of stuff so you know just something gets killed there and it, it just kind of explodes nastily and gets evil all over the place yeah it can happen i suppose the other thing could be going out and and cleaning 
<laughs> these unholy sites somehow. Yeah. Consecrating that which has been desecrated or restoring one that has been damaged intentionally by the other side somehow. Yep. It's a very common one. Go reclaim this temple, reclaim this shrine. You get that a lot in, uh, again, it's a, a console RPG kind of thing because, hey, here's this convenient dungeon full of monsters. But uh, it's pretty common in tabletop RPG modules too. Yeah. And of course, you know, the Temple of Elemental Evil and things like that are exactly that. Hey, here's this nasty temple. Go deal with it. Yeah, it's enough to be a trope, so. Exactly. Do we have much else on this? I don't think, I don't think we do. I know I don't. Okay. Well, it's a short episode, but I'm not going to complain. I've got a bit of a cold, like I said earlier, and I'm going to rest my voice a little bit. <laughs> short, but I think kind of dense. We yeah, really dense. covered a lot of material in a short period of time. Uh, for our listeners who have ideas about this sort of thing, definitely post those in our comments or tweet them at us or send messages on Facebook, things like that. Comments on the uh, episode are probably the best way to go because other people get to see those and contribute to the conversation and that sort of thing. But Twitter also works pretty well for that. We try and re retweet interesting suggestions and that sort of thing. Yeah, and the same goes, by the way, for the uh, blog entries that I intersperse into weeks when we don't have an episode. I always love seeing conversation on those, and we've gotten some really good conversation on some previous ones. So Yeah, we have. That is always very welcome. And if you're not paying attention to our website on the off weeks, you really should, because Peter's been posting some very good articles there. Oh, thank you. That's all I've got. Anything yep. else from you? No, I think we're good. Awesome. Well, from both of us here at Saving the Game, we're going to wish everybody some great gaming and a good one. Take it easy. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless and happy gaming.